This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Good morning and welcome to the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy podcast. I'm agronomist Brian Schrader on the eastern side of the state, joined as always by my co-host Ben Jacob, agronomist from southern Indiana. Good morning, Ben. Morning, Brian. So, uh, Ben, Big Ten football is starting very soon, I guess Saturday. And uh, so we wanted to reach around the country. And as we get into football season, we want to reach out to uh, alumnus of all of the universities that we're playing. And so Purdue has a game with uh, Fresno State on Saturday. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to find a uh, Fresno State alumnus, which turns out to be more difficult than I expected it to be uh, within Pioneer. And so uh, we're joined by uh, Eric Migliazzo. Uh, He is a uh, strategic account manager from California. And so we got Eric on. We'll talk a little bit about Fresno State Purdue football here in a little bit. But uh, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Why don't you introduce yourself for uh, folks so they can get to know you real quick? Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Uh, my name's Eric. You know, I've been a strategic account manager here just recently, but came over from a dairy specialist role um, that I was uh, in for a couple of years. Been with Pioneer now for five years, uh, based out of the Central Valley of California. I live uh, just about 30 minutes south of Fresno in one of our uh, major corn growing areas, Tulare County, um, working with a lot of dairymen out here. Um, and so uh, glad to be here and looking forward to seeing a great game here in a week. All right. Awesome. So I guess let's start out. Let's talk about what does agriculture look like uh, in the Central Valley, Eric? I mean, we we would picture and folks that maybe know a little bit about that understand it can be incredibly productive ground, obviously. Um, But talk to us a little bit about what agriculture looks like, not only from the pioneer standpoint, but just really in general, uh, what does the agriculture in that part of the world look like? Yeah, so the the Central Valley is really diverse. Uh, We have just about every crop you can think of. You know, a lot of what we're known for are almond production, Um, almond or almond, depending on which part of the state you're from. You know, either one of, uh, depending on who you talk to, they might drop the L out of there. And so, uh, yeah, almonds, walnuts, pistachios, you know, are some of our major crops. Also, dairy is one of our major markets here in in, uh, California. Uh, we're still, I think, four of the top five dairy-producing counties in the country are, are based here in California. So we uh, we have that on the Pioneer side of pretty much 90% of our corn is grown for silage. We have a little bit of grain production. You know, we have everything from Delta peat dirt. Uh, they grow some grain up in the, the Sacramento Delta and then all the way down into Bakersfield, Kern County. You know, they're growing quite a bit of corn. All of that's pretty much just for silage. We do have a little bit of white corn production for um, some of the uh, non-GMO organic uh, tortilla factories that we have here in the valley. And so for the most part, that kind of, guess, covers on the pioneer side. Uh, going back to the row cropping side, you know, not just uh, corn and bean system, uh, but we also, you know, for row crops, cotton. Cotton's one of our major production uh, um, crops out here, too. Tomatoes as well. Tomatoes are a huge investment um, here in the Central Valley. Um, and so we we are pretty diversified. Stone fruit, especially in the area that I live in, stone fruit's huge. Um, a lot of it comes down to water situations, ground, ground situations, um, citrus as well, too. So we have a little bit of everything out here. 
And so it makes it fun. You know, you're not, you're driving past, uh, you go, you'd be driving past a block of peaches and then all of a sudden a block of oranges or tangerines. And then all of a sudden get to a cornfield with a big dairy behind it. So it makes it a lot of fun seeing some diversity around here. Yeah. I think the, the one time that I was there had an opportunity to visit the woodland research station that we have where uh, we do a lot of our drought research on corn. And that was the thing that was amazing to me when we dropped in to the valley and started driving just exactly what you described. You'd see a cornfield and then right next to it, you'd see a grove of trees and then right next to it. It was just really amazing because, you know, you can in the Midwest, you drive for miles and the only thing you see is corn and soybeans and maybe the occasional alfalfa field. And so that was the thing for me that really stood out. I mean, even crops that I had never seen that I had to ask, hey, what was that field, you know, or or grove maybe I guess would be the more appropriate way to refer to it with the trees. So it was it was really fascinating for me to see that diversity because that's just so unusual for us out here in the, the Midwest. So Oh yeah. Yep, definitely. No, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome what we have out here. We got a special thing going for us, so it makes it a lot yeah. of fun, that's for sure. Yeah, so you mentioned water as being a determining factor in certain situations. Talk to us. I mean, we hear about all of the things, you know, uh, if you work with dairy producers, you hear about some dairies leaving California because of water concerns and moving further uh, east, obviously. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about how you guys have to manage water and what the concerns are around water in California for uh, ag producers. Yep, yep. So basically our two main sources of water for irrigating crops throughout the summertime. I mean, up until this last week, I'd tell you we got zero inches of rainfall through the summer months during the growing months. But then all of a sudden Monday we had this hurricane come through and got, well, I got about half an inch of, half an inch of rain on Monday night in my house. <laughs> and so uh, it was kind of scattered all, all over the place. Uh, but for the most part, we don't get any, any measurable rainfall du- during the growing months. So all of our water supplies coming from either groundwater, which is pumped out of the ground through wells and then fed through irrigation systems, or our surface water allocations, which is basically our snow melt that falls in the mountains uh, during the wintertime and then collected in reservoirs and, and fed through you know, canals and basically on the surface of the ground in order to uh, be, uh, irrigate all these crops. Um, so what the issues we've been running into, they passed a groundwater management act a number of years ago to basically limit the amount of groundwater we can pump out due to subsidence. Um, we have some major aquifers below us and they're, they're depleting rather fast. Um, so they they passed some management acts here in the state of California to basically limit how much groundwater we can pump. Uh, a lot of guys don't have access to that surface water. And so in order to grow crops, they were relying on that groundwater for a long time. Um, That's kind of driven some uh, prices on some ground down, um, basically not making it as economical to farm. So these these groundwater management acts, basically they're gonna limit you to say, well, they're all different too. There's about 200 different areas in the Central Valley and each one of them has its own different set of rules. And so when they come out and say, you know, you can only pump 25% of your normal groundwater usage, basically only 25% of your total farmland is going to be usable um, in order to grow something on it. So that's what's caused a lot of the dairymen to move out of California. You know, corn's generally a secondary thought for a lot of farmers, especially some cuts from farmers. Uh, But if these dairies can't grow enough feed for their cows, they're going to be finding some place to head out to. 
along with you know some of the politics that get involved in California, people aren't exactly uh, wanting to stick around here for very long, and there's some better opportunity elsewhere with some lower lower uh, cost of doing business. So I think that that's uh, some of the driving factor for some of the dairy dairy dairymen kind of exodus out of California. Yeah. So is water the most expensive input for most uh, California growers? I mean, give us some kind of idea. You know, we talk about nitrogen typically being one of our most expensive uh, inputs out here, but is water one of those more expensive inputs for a lot of your growers? Well, so generally, yes. Generally speaking, the hard part to quantify on that, since there is so many different areas that either have surface water or don't have surface water, generally surface water from the mountains is substantially cheaper, you know, costs somewhere between 30 to $70 an acre foot, whereas well water, you know, you can pump it out of the ground, but if you're pumping it, you know, you got to pay that electricity cost. So it has some uh, substantial effect on that. But at the same time, generally, if the better the water quality and availability is on a single acre of ground, the more expensive the land cost is going to be. And so that's kind of, it's an inverse, uh, you know, function there. And so depending on if there's ample surface water, generally your land payment's going to be quite a bit more. And if there's not as much surface water, your land payment's going to be less. And so water is the driving factor, I'd say, behind all of that, for sure. Well, you you mentioned the politics of California. Um, You know, certainly we hear a lot about that as well. Uh, you know, related to water, a lot of times is nutrient management, uh, with dairies, obviously a lot of manure that has to be dealt with as well. Talk to us a little bit about what regulations around, uh, nutrient management look like. That's, that's something we're hearing more about, uh, in the Eastern corn belt all the time because of, you know, water quality and things like that. What day to day, what's that look like for you as a pioneer, Sam, or for the, the folks that you work with uh, on corn and alfalfa. Yep, yep. So exactly. So we we do deal with a lot of you know environmental protection uh, regulations on the nutrient management plans, especially you know the majority of our our uh, business is done with dairymen and custom farmers that are working specifically for dairymen. Um, so that's that's the other reason a lot of these guys are are looking at moving out of California. The nutrient management plan restrictions have gotten so tight. You know they they want lagoons lined with plastic to in order to avoid any kind of leaching or anything like that you know it takes a lot of investment some of these dairies that have been grandfathered in if they want to improve or expand or anything like that um, in order to go through and renovate facilities they have to kind of fit all this criteria and like something like lining lagoons or having a flush system in place uh, being able to make sure that they have enough farm ground to distribute manure on throughout the year that the cows are producing Um, You know, you have to have a certain amount of acres in order to be permitted for a certain amount of cows. And so that's made it pretty tough. It's definitely made it a lot easier out of state, Um, kind of followed followed up with some guys that have moved out of California into states like South Dakota, um, Nebraska, guys that have been down in Texas for a while. Um, They definitely have said that it is a lot easier by moving out of California just makes makes uh, headaches, you know, a lot smaller from what they are with. Uh, nutrient management plans around here and even my family had a dairy we just sold the cows about two years ago but uh, we've had a dairy for about 55 years 60 years and that was one of the things my dad even mentioned to me you know 
that was one of the reasons it was it was tough to stay in the cattle business uh, out here in California for sure. So it was a sad day, but it was uh, it was it was much uh, it was much uh, appreciated not having the headaches like we used to anymore. So <laughs> okay, Christmas is yep. a lot Christmas is a lot less stressful nowadays while while making sure you don't have to milk cows on Christmas Eve. So yeah, you bet. Yeah. So with with all the diversity out there, Herrick, I mean, I'm thinking through um, weed management here in the heartland, where, as Brian mentioned, we've got really, really two crops. I mean, we mix in a few others, but we do have some spots of diversity. We've got, um, you know, in my area, I have some some blackberries and some melons, um, some tomatoes, things like that. And maybe it's just because it, it's different for us, but it's really difficult to, to manage just herbicides around, around anywhere we have diversity. What's a, what's that experience out there with all the diversity and high value crops next door to some of those places? Yeah, definitely. And that, that's always a difficult aspect too. Um, so yeah, with, you know, obviously using some broadleaf herbicides or anything like that, you definitely don't want to get those around any grapes or, you know, any kind of trees or anything. Um, so we do have a lot of strict regulations and that's the other hard part about doing business in California, especially on the farming side. A lot of the products that, you know, Cortevas kind of have on their flagship herbicide line, um, we're not allowed to use out here. Pretty much the, the standard practice around California is, you know, Roundup Liberty Link mix, uh, or some type of Roundup and Liberty. And then, uh, we have a couple of products that Corteva offers, you know, Steadfast Q, Accent Q. Um, we can still use those, but for the most part, that's pretty much all we're limited to, um, you know, some of the like Resicor and everything like that, you know, we can't, they're not registered for use in California. Everything has to go through a certified, uh, basically certified pest advisor um, in order to get a recommendation written for that, almost like going to the doctor's office. Um, and so pretty much everything has to be written through somebody certified through the state of California. So that makes it an extra step of difficulty, making sure everything gets applied right. And so there's a lot of liability that comes down to some of these applicators. And so it definitely gets a little bit more expensive, a little bit more difficult um, trying to stay within those guidelines too. So yeah, with with those restrictions or limited limited options, do you guys see any resistance issues popping up? I mean, I know water hemp, pigweed, stuff like that in the Midwest has been a huge issue for years. Um, and just think that every tool we lose out of the toolbox, how much more difficult those get to manage. Is there you guys have resistance problems out there? Yeah, so we're starting to run into some resistance problems on a couple of grasses. Uh, we call there's one called jungle rice that we have out here that's spread pretty much exclusively across a lot of the dairy ground, a lot of the corn ground, especially guys that are strip tilling. Um, so we're seeing a lot of glyphosate resistance to that one. Um, so we're trying to come up with some creative solutions with Steadfast, a um, couple other couple other sulfurons to um, take care of some of those. Um, especially some glufosinate products definitely work a lot better than glyphosate. So we've been pretty much uh, exhausting our resources, trying to keep it under control. Um, it seems like we're fighting a losing battle until we get some new uh, registered herbicides out here for use on corn in California, especially. And I will give them that. There is some, uh, there is some benefit on the, on the um, diversified agriculture side, you know, with a, a lot of our different crops. Corteva does an extremely good job of promoting some new and getting getting uh, labels for some of these new herbicides for, you know, other crops like almonds, uh, grapes, stuff like that. And so actually I, I was at a trial the other day or a field trial that they were doing a launch on. And uh, it seems like they were getting some new regulations and new um, uh, clearances for um, 
using this new new product here in California. So admire them on that. They're definitely taking care of some of the bigger problems. That's the harder part with California. Corn is basically a secondary thought for us. So Corteva's doing uh doing good by, you know, taking care of the biggest acreage at least in California too. Now I just can't imagine corn being a secondary thought to anyone. Uh, <laughs> but um what about what about fungicides? I mean, I know you are well, let me back up. Are your irrigated acres primarily overhead or is it subsurface irrigation? So our irrigated acres are actually mostly flooded irrigated okay. or flood irrigated. So everything's done, you know, in checks and levees. And so we do have some interest in putting some more pivots in because of these groundwater regulations. Uh, some guys are just starting to put a couple in here this year. I'd say before this year we had, I think it was 12 pivots of corn in California. Um, if I if I counted them all correctly, I think we had about 12. So, uh, yeah. but there is some more interest, you know, trying to be trying to do some water saving measures with this Groundwater Management Act. Um, guys are starting to look at them a little bit more frequently. Um, definitely talk of putting quite a few of them in. So, uh, that, I think that's going to be the way of the future. Some guys are starting to do some subsurface stuff, especially if they're rotating tomato ground. Um, tomatoes are pretty much all exclusively on subsurface drip. And so we do have quite a few farmers that, you know, have dairies also that rotate acres with tomatoes that are doing subsurface drip as well. And so that's that's actually paying off extremely all, extremely well, too, because of uh, basically the, the water saving measures and being able to constantly have water on that crop, too. Yeah, interesting. So so with that system, you're you don't have enough really canopy moisture to have to have any foliar disease pressure then our. Or, or or do you? Yeah, I mean, are there significant diseases in your row crops that you need to manage out there? Is so a better the way corn, to ask that. Yeah, in the corn side, no. <laughs> that's, yeah. what, that's what's kind of nice. The, really, the only pest that we deal or pest or problem we deal with in, in our silage corn is spider mites, the two-spotted oh, spider yeah. mites. Um, for the most part, though, on our uh, foliars and everything like that, you know, we don't deal with any tar spot. We don't have, because it's so dry and hot, basically, we don't have any kind of foliar diseases. Um, you know, we see like purple leaf sheath and stuff like that. But for the most part, actually, I did have a I did have a grower the other day ask me about spraying fungicide to take care of purple leaf sheath. And I was like, man, I don't know. It's going to be kind of a it's kind of a stretch. But and I see what he was trying to get at. And then they were trying to affect some swat silage quality that way. But we'll see if it works out. We're getting we're doing a little trial with them. So we're going to see if it works out or not. But for the most part, yeah, we don't spray any fungicides. Um, we don't really have any problem. You know, we see some common smut just like everybody else. But um, no northern corn leaf blight, no gosses wilt, nothing like that. So it makes it fairly easy. Um, the mites blow up on us, though. Those will defoliate some plants pretty quick with how hot and dry it is. Yeah. yeah. So, so would you I say guess, that? Oh, go ahead, Ben. Sorry. Would you say that the that the your in corn and your silage production that spider mites are your biggest agronomic concern? Or yeah, that, that and water stress. It seems yeah, like even keeping water around as much as we can. Uh, yeah. keep the water moving as much as we can, especially in the dry years, you know, when we only have well water. Um, I'd say that's our biggest agronomic concern by far. Um, spider mites are pretty well easy to take care of. You know, miticides are pretty well uh, used around around California. Um, the other hard the other hard challenge that we do have, our planting season usually runs from about the last weekend in March or last week in March till about uh, middle of July to first week of August. So okay. we plant corn for four months. <laughs> so yeah. We have a little bit of everything. Generally, the early planted stuff, uh, you know, the last week of March, first week of April, 
Um, generally, that stuff would get hit by mites harder just because um, during the month of June, uh, early July, you know, when it's pollinating and during grain fill, uh, it gets really hot. Those plants are a little stressed. It seems like the spider mites blow up in the uh, almonds quite a bit, and then they'll move into the cornfields too. You know, it could be right next door. And so we've seen a lot of we've seen a lot more pressure in the last. Just talking to some coworkers that have been around for a lot longer than I have, we've seen a lot more pressure in the last 15 to 20 years as the almond acres have kind of blown up. Um, you know, there's three million acres of almonds in California now, and so that's up substantially from where it was. And it seems like that might be causing some of the issue because those trees get stressed too, and those mites will blow up pretty quick. So Eric, what hybrids give us an idea? I know folks are going to be curious, is there any crossover, you know, and with a window that large, what kind of maturity are we talking about as well? And so that, that would be my question. Cause I know some of our listeners yeah. are really want to know what you guys are planting out there. Oh yeah. Yep. So we've, uh, so we plant pretty much exclusively all long season. Um, but with that being said, there is parts of California, like up on the North coast where there's a couple dairies at that are planting down to 77, 80 day varieties. And so we also have some stuff in Oregon. I was up in Oregon when I was a dairy specialist, uh, looking at this new 6910 that came out last year. Um, it really saved them a new one because they couldn't plant till 4th of July on that Western coast of Oregon, you know, West of Portland. Uh, that Tillamook region. So they they had some really wet, rainy springs. Uh, couldn't get planted until the 4th of July. Used this new 6910. Uh, saw some great results with it. And so that's, I think, the shortest, I think that's the shortest hybrid that Pioneer offers. And out here in California, we are exclusively 118 to 120 days, pretty much. Okay. We do have a little bit of shorter stuff, but uh, as far as hybrids go, I mean, you can pretty much start at the at the very bottom of the list. Uh, 2089, I think, is the longest maturity that we have at 120 days. So that's been a standby product for us for a long time. Um, we all, the, some of the new ones that have came out in the last couple of years, 1718, 1759, have been absolutely spectacular for us. Uh, really excited about what 1759 is going to do for us. 1718 looks like it's going to fit that early planted window really well. Um, and then moving down 1366, I think you guys probably use some of that out there. 1366 has been a great silage hybrid for us. Uh, the quality on that one's as fantastic as it gets. And that's really what we're looking at is starch quality. Um, pretty much anybody can make tonnage, but if you can make tonnage with some starch, um, I think that's, that's the way to go. I had some dairymen that tell me that they've increased milk production, you know, a number of pounds just because of uh, having starch in the pile and being able to um, not have to buy rolled corn. So it's made their lives a lot easier in the last couple of years switching to Pioneer. And so we get all the way down to, uh, we had some 0720 out here this year, a little bit shorter stuff, a um, little bit of triple nine eight for that stuff planted late July, early August, um, trying to just get it, make sure if we have a, if we have a wet fall, uh, make sure these choppers can still get in the field and harvest. <laughs> we uh, we yeah. shorted up a little bit, and for the most part, though, we'll stick between that 115 to 120 day range. Yeah, a lot of crossover there, Ben. I'm actually a little bit surprised on that. I think you guys down south are using some 17, 18, I believe, and I've I had folks, you know, for a long time, 2088, the precursor to 2089. That was a national corn grower winner for a number of years. And so had a lot of guys wanting to use that. That hybrid's been around quite a long time. You know, same kind of lifespan as what 1197 has been for us here uh, in the Corn Belt. So I, I'm actually a little bit surprised about how much crossover there is there. Yeah, I am. I am as well. And, you know, so 1718, we, that is our 
high yield, high management, and it'll 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 throw baseball bats and you know hit three hundred bushels consistently if you feed it right. Um, let's circle back to the very beginning. Still in this same vein, you mentioned a small white corn market out there, and and you know white corn's near and dear to my heart, both from my background and and where we live at now. Maybe the same question around that: what's a what's the white corn product lineup look like? Yeah, so pretty much, uh, so that's a little bit more outdated, I'd say, than even the 2089 market. So uh, all of ours is non-GMO. And so for Azteca and Gruma, uh, so we use pretty much exclusively 32B10 for that market. Uh, we have a little bit of 1618, but for the most part, 32B10's untouched. And so it's been working well for us. Um, and, and so last year, we didn't have hardly any acres of it, uh, just because that market fluctuates greatly. And so depending on what the premiums, the, the, the um, processors offer, you know, depends on how many acres we kind of grow out here in California. And so this year, I think we're up substantially. I think we got about three or 4,000 acres of it. Uh, last year, I think was about 50. So we're uh, uh, up substantially from last year, but yeah, pretty much 32 B10. And I actually had a, I actually had a, a grower tell me one time that he had to take his 32 B10 field for silage because he ran out of water. He couldn't get that last irrigation on it. He also said that was the best silage he's ever made. But at the same time, I uh, I don't have any results off of that one. And I think uh, 1759, 1718 are still going to outyield it pretty much time and time again. So, and it's also a conventional hybrid. So not being able to use herbicides on it definitely uh, has a little bit of an effect there too. Yeah, well, Brian, we're gonna we're gonna have to edit that question out because it's at least once a season that somebody still asks me why they can't get a hold of thirty two B ten, and <laughs> I just tell them that it's unavailable. So if we if we let this out there and they know yeah. that there's some markets that it's available, uh, <laughs> that's definitely a good one to edit out too. Especially, uh, yeah, that might not be good. So no, no it's it's fine, <laughs> but it's uh, the, it. I mean, tremendous ear flex on that thing, and I understand why people like it. And and here here in the Midwest. Um, Honestly, being able to control gray was one of the reasons that it's it's not around anymore, and we have mm-hmm. much better plant health and some of the newer options. But that's that's interesting. Azteca is our primary market in southern Indiana as well for yep. for white corn. Um, we have both traded and non-GMO, but that's a that's a very interesting crossover. What are, what are you guys using for white corn out there? Uh, Sixteen fifty six is primary, and we use it both for conventional and traded. It is. It is the bulk of our acres at this point. Um, we have 1790 as a conventional as well that okay. is relatively new, um, but mostly, you know, 1618 is, is largely, we've largely moved on from it. And there are a few other traded, 114-day traded products that we have very small piles of. It's just that the, the yield and plant health on 1656 are just so good down here yeah. that it's it's hard to pass. And the grain, the grain quality is phenomenal on it too. Yeah. So it's on the approved list for Azteca, though. Yep. Yep. Okay. I guess I'm curious. Would the approved list for Azteca is it a national list? So Eric, if you're looking at the list, and Ben, you're looking at the list. Are you guys looking at the exact same list, and it's just what makes sense locally to plant? As far as I know, I think it is in the nationally approved list. Yeah, I think I would I would have to imagine that the cook test is standardized. I don't think that they're I don't think that they're probably publishing locally um, everything that is national just because, you know, to make basically to make my life easier. Sure. Uh, but I would assume that once it's cooked, like once it's once it's passed the cook test, that it's it's approved for processing wherever. But, OK. Yeah. OK. Well, we Eric, you had talked out. about. Oh, 
you, you had talked about being a dairy specialist and then moving to the strategic account manager role. You know, in the Midwest, the, the strategic account manager role tends to work with larger key accounts that we're trying to make some connections with, uh, obviously. I guess I'm curious, what's an average uh, farm size for you? What are the account sizes that you're working with? Are you looking at acreages? Are you looking at number of cows uh, with these guys that are, you know, that you're working with as a strategic account manager? Talk to us a little bit about that new role you've taken on here and how that looks. Yep. So on the, well, I guess I was starting out as the dairy specialist, you know, I was, I was taking on a lot of responsibility for contacting some of the nutrition groups that are working with some of these herds that, you know, we haven't had as much uh, business with in the past. And so trying to drive kind of what happens in the field to what gets seen in the feed bunk to what gets seen in the milk tank, uh, trying to be that link to try and bring some better forage quality and everything like that. And kind of a little bit all encompassing on their entire forage operations uh, for some of these larger herds. And so that's kind of carried into the strategic account manager role. You know, I was working pretty closely with some of these large herds across the Western United States. Um, as far as acreage and cow numbers go, like our average herd size in California is probably about 1,400 cows right now, just because some of the, some of the you know, sell-off here in the last couple of months, you know, with the dairy industry being where it's been, a lot of the smaller herds have been selling out recently. And so that number is going up just about every week. I think every week I see a herd posted for sale. Um, so we're seeing a little bit of that. So we're seeing some consolidation. Seems like the bigger herds are getting bigger. Uh, they might be buying up some of the smaller ones because they can carry some of that debt load a little bit longer. Um, but as far as the, uh, on the strategic account manager side, you know, really looking at that 600, 700 acre grower um, might be milking, you know, like for us, at least in California, because land's so limited to um, usually if they've got six or 700 acres, they're milking two to 3000 cows. Um, okay. I know in other parts of the country, it might be closer to one acre per one cow. Uh, out here, we're, we're a little bit more limited on space and everything like that with some of our diversified ag. And so guys are buying feed from outside sources, buying quite a bit of feed from outside sources. We also do feed a lot of concentrates too. Um, so our, our dairy markets are definitely a little bit different. Um, you know, we're feeding about a 50% forage ration out here in, out here in the West. Um, just to just with the, our use of byproducts, you know, almond holes are huge for us. So um, okay. with that being said, so our larger herds might not have as much acreage as say the same size herd in the different part of the country. And so really looking at five, at least 500 acre growers that, you know, we don't have any business with or anything like that. Um, trying to work with them on on working on getting some pioneer out there and showing them, showing them the benefit on feed quality, especially is really the biggest thing. So sure. Yeah. And you had mentioned that, you know, you work with some custom growers who are raising corn as well. Uh, is that a lot of the corn that these guys are feeding? What percentage of the corn that they're feeding, the, you know, is that coming from custom guys versus the ground that they own percentage wise? Yeah. And I'd, I'd say, well, depending on what part of the state you're in, it's definitely different. You know, as, as you move farther south, it seems like, like Tulare County, there's a lot more custom farmers. Um, that are, are are selling feed to dairymen specifically. As you move farther north, it seems like there's more guys that have their own ground. Um, but I guess it can be said there's definitely definitely um, some of both in every part of the state. And so if I'd say on an average, you know, probably 60 to 70 percent is homegrown and probably 30 to 40 percent is bought. 
and you know there's exceptions to that rule for, for sure. everybody <laughs> but i'd say that's yeah. probably a pretty good that's the best guess i could probably give you as of right okay. now yeah, no, I mean, you know, that's a, we're seeing more of that here locally with larger dairies. They just don't own the ground uh, that they need to be able to feed the cow, you know, herd that they've got. And so it was just kind of an interesting comparison to make. So, yeah, and uh, the same thing I, I guess I want to add in too on the alfalfa side. Our alfalfa acres are decreasing substantially, and guys are feeding less of it. And a lot of that's coming in from out of state. So, whether it's Utah or Idaho, um, Arizona, there's a lot of hay that moves in from out of state into California for a lot of these herds too. So, but that, that, that number has decreased as far as how much is getting fed, you know, probably pretty substantially, at least in half over the last probably 10 years or so guys were feeding six, seven pounds of alfalfa a day. Now they're probably down to closer to two or three. So. Okay. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned before we were recording, we obviously have talked a lot about corn and soybeans, not very, or excuse me, corn and alfalfa. We haven't talked a lot about soybeans, but uh, you shared with Ben and I that you're going to win the uh, soybean sales award for California this year. So talk to us a little bit about that. You know, uh, I know that you've got some keen interest in Plenish because of uh, the impact that it could have on uh, dairy nutrition. So talk to us about your soybean crop that you've got so far. So I, I got I to gotta preface this by saying I have very limited soybean knowledge. <laughs> so I didn't know what a soybean was until I came out and worked for Pioneer after growing up in California. <laughs> so I, uh, I have very limited knowledge on the soybean side. Uh, we, I know we have tried to grow them out here in California before. We have a little bit of plenish. I mean, that's the most exciting thing in the dairy industry right now. Uh, the guys in the upper, upper uh, northeast, are, our phones are ringing off the hook talking about plenish beans. And so, of course, I got my hands on that information and I was like, what can we do to get plenished beans out here in California to really help out this dairy industry? <laughs> so we're uh, we're working on uh, we have about 20 acres uh, planted across the western United States. We got a little bit in Nevada. We got a little bit in Washington and a little bit in Oregon. And so we're experimenting with seeing how they grow out here in the west, you know, with our different climates and everything. I know we've planted beans in the past in California, and the issue that we ran into was there was uh, basically no humidity, and we had a year where some uh, some strong winds kind of came through, you know, super hot, super dry right before harvest, and all the pods shattered and all the beans ended up on the ground. I think that one put the nail in the coffin for growing beans in California if you can only do it, you know, one out of every three years, so uh we're experimenting pretty much or looking into really looking into on the logistical side of things probably importing them from you know another state uh whether that be nebraska south dakota somewhere there actually i just had a meeting with the dairyman about it we're going to go over his rations see if plenished beans would even fit to begin with with our our lower forage based diets mm -hmm. and i think they will we're pretty we're pretty um we're pretty excited to do it I think they're going to have a fit now, whether they're economical or not is going to be the biggest, uh, biggest factor to it. But I think uh, we're on to something pretty, pretty groundbreaking. And, you know, if things prove true, uh, we're going to start with some smaller trials, you know, trying to get some beans out here and then, and then hopefully uh, it's going to turn into something big. And I think Plenish is going to take over the soybean market across the country, which is pretty cool to, cool to think about. So. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, you know, that's a long time coming it's an exciting thing. I mean, not only from, you know, when the whole process started, it was all about food and then we found these industrial uses for it. And then you guys on the dairy side have started to grab a hold of it. And I would agree with you. It's very exciting. Um, I guess you could call it technology, but there's so many applications for it that when we originally rolled the thing out, we just didn't even consider or think about, or at least 
it wasn't verbalized if the folks in the breeding program had talked about it. So pretty well, exciting. And I had even mentioned it to Bill Mahana one day. I asked him, I said, how, how did this come about on the dairy side? And he said, someone literally just made the connection one day. They're like, wow, this actually could work. And then ran the model and and sure enough, it was uh, the next groundbreaking thing in the dairy industry. I feel like it's the next groundbreaking thing since silage processors, corn processors, and silage shop. Wow. <laughs> so it okay. It's going to be, I think it's going to be pretty huge. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. That's that's quite the statement. That's really cool <laughs> to to hear. So, yeah, for those of you that may not be aware, Bill Mahana is a, our, the forage expert within uh, Pioneer, has been part of the forage program, I guess, for as long as I've been with the company and Bill's probably forgotten more about silage and forage production than most of us will ever learn. He's just has been really helpful to a lot of people across the organization, a lot of growers across the entire country and internationally to boot. So that's who Bill is that Eric referenced. So, well, Eric, let's talk a little bit about uh, Fresno state and Purdue football. I mean, that's why we got you on. It's been fascinating to learn about, uh, California agriculture and uh, your position specifically. Uh, I guess first thing is, do you have a score prediction for the game? Oh man, a score prediction is going to be tough. I think Fresno State's going to win by, I'm going to say 10 points. We'll okay. Say 27-17. I'll do that. 27-17. Uh, All right. Is there a prize if I get it right? Uh, we'll we'll find something. I don't. <laughs> maybe we'll send you a Purdue hat. Who knows? <laughs> That's fine with me. That's fine with me. Brian, we can. We can we can mail him some plenish merch. I've got I've got plenty of that. So, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that's a good. Win, yeah, win, we could do that. If you That'd win, be awesome. I'll get you some plenish merch. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so we're pretty excited about the season, that's for sure. Okay, yeah, and so I guess I, I'm curious. I I'm, I don't pay a, that much attention to uh, California sports. Um, you know, Fresno State. I mean, is there a good history of a pretty strong football program there? Are you guys in a rebuilding stage or what's the give us the rundown on fresno state football real quick eric yes the fresno state's coming off a mountain west championship win last year you know with jay kaner and uh so now jay kaner and another fresno state grad Derek carr are both at the new orleans saints for quarterback uh okay. so it's gonna be pretty fun to watch so i guess i'm a saints fan now because <laughs> i got two fresno state grads over there uh, yeah. But for the most part, our offense is fairly new. Uh, you know, our new quarterback is supposed to be pretty good. He's a transfer from UCF. So we'll see kind of how that shakes out uh, here in his first couple of games. Um, but our defense has got nine of 11, uh, nine of 11 guys returning. So I think our defense is going to be able to hold it down for us, hopefully keep some uh, yards to a minimum. And then as long as our, our uh, offense can kind of uh, develop over the year, I think we're going to have a pretty solid year this year. And Tedford's Tedford's one of the best developing uh, off or best for developing an offense at any at just about any coach in the country. I feel like so uh, we're pretty excited about this year. I got some buddies that are you know diehard Fresno State fans. They go to every single game. Unfortunately, I got too many weddings this fall to make it to too many games. But uh, we're uh, we're definitely excited to be watching them and see what they can do this year. Well, if you're if you're a Saints fan because because of your alumni quarterbacks made it there, then you have something in common with many Purdue fans. And That's Purdue right. I, was there yeah. for years, so so yeah. There's 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 good yeah. there's good overlap all over the country. It's a small world. Brian Carl had Carl had sent us a message that uh, he is going to take his Boilermakers twenty seven twenty three over the Bulldogs here oh, next later. week. So okay. 
All right. And my prediction is, is I think maybe you guys are all underestimating the score. I think maybe this might be a fairly offensive shootout when they play on Saturday. And so, you know, I'm thinking probably more like in the the high thirties for a score. I think it'll be close. I'm expecting maybe, um, you know, into the game push from the boilers down the field to get it done. And so I'm thinking more like, you know, 38, 32 or something like that. I'm, I'm expecting a fairly high scoring game out of this one, just because of the potential for offense on both sides. So. I'll, I'll take the opposite approach, Brian, and since they're okay. first early season, all the cobwebs, you know, that's a, there's a wide time difference there. So I think, I think everybody's going to come out a little bit shaky with some rust and I'm going to go 17, 14 for the Boilermakers. We'll get right. up on Eric here. There we go. Yeah. I mean, I don't <laughs> think anybody right. expected us to do something different. So, <laughs> so Eric, I, I'm curious, uh, you know, what's the ag school at Fresno state look like? I mean, is that a significant part? I mean, obviously it's, it's very similar to Purdue and I know that it's got an engineering group along with the ag group, you know, it's the traditional kind of land grant model, if you will. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the, the ag school there at Fresno state, just so folks can get familiar with it. Yeah. So Fresno state, I mean, basically they're built on the agricultural department. Um, they have a 1200 acre school farm, um, doing a little bit of diversified everything. They have a dairy unit, you know, they're milking cows there. They have uh, forage production, they have almonds, they have pistachios, uh, uh, beef production, meat slab, you know, they're, they're, uh, slaughtering their own animals, making, making, uh, pretty much any kind of product you can think out of that, um, that they're selling in a farmer's market. Really their biggest, uh, their biggest, uh, driver on the school farm is, uh, their sweet corn sales. Okay. Um, and I will, I will put their sweet, uh, plug in for their sweet corn. You know, I've been out, my cousins are in Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota has some pretty good sweet corn parts of the parts of the Midwest have some really good sweet corn, but I think Fresno States might take the cake on that. one. So, yeah. Uh, but as far as their, as far as their ag department actually goes, you know, their ag business, uh, departments, uh, really huge. Uh, they're big feeders for crop, uh, crop science and agronomy skills, you know, with the, they're kind of a feeder program that goes into the PCA, uh, program that's used here in California for, um, writing recommendations on, on, um, herbicides and insecticides and everything like that. Uh, so they they definitely have one of the premier ag divisions or ag departments in California. Um, actually their viticulture and enology programs, one of the best in the world. And so they get they get viticulture and enology students from all over the all over the place uh, coming here. You know, we have a lot of wine production in California too. So it feeds into that pretty yep. well. So as far as their their definitely one of the top uh, schools for agriculture in California. And so sure. they're, they're as competitive as they get. Okay. Well, we, we don't have, I know we have a wine tasting class at Purdue. We used to anyway, but I don't think that we've got anything quite that complicated or directed specifically to the, uh, the grape grower in Indiana. Although that is a market that is developing in Indiana. We've got a lot more great production and a lot of small wineries that have crept up in the state here over the last handful of years. So maybe those folks are getting all their expertise from Fresno state and bringing it back to Hoosier oh, yeah, land. Guys, so. You guys are stealing all our education from over here. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Eric, we sure appreciate uh, you being on with us today. I've learned a ton and have really enjoyed it. Ben, anything that we haven't hit Eric up about that we need to do that before we go. 
Nope, I've I've enjoyed the conversation as well. It's always interesting to see see one how much overlap there is when it 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 does seem at face value that it's a completely different world. So, um, you know, maybe maybe get some sixteen fifty six out there for your for your conventional white market. It's it's a stud. But no, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Eric, for coming on and and spending spending an hour almost with us today. It's, yeah, it's been it's been fun. Yeah. So, Eric. Uh, you know, we always ask, uh, you got a social media presence. If somebody heard something about California agriculture that they're curious about, how could they maybe get a hold of you or follow along with what you're doing? Yeah, so I do have a I do have a Twitter handle. Uh, if you search Eric Migliazzo, it'll pop up on there. I think it's just Eric-Migliazzo. Um, I don't necessarily post things all the time. I check it pretty regularly, though. So messages on there. Um, and also, if they want to get a hold of either uh, you or Brian or, Brian or Ben, you know, we can uh, get in contact if they had any questions about specifically dairy markets or anything like that. Um, you know, that's kind of my expertise. Yeah, you bet. Definitely okay. always willing to host if anybody comes out for uh, for World Ag Expo down here in Tulare in February. You know, come find us at the Pioneer booth. We're always there. Um, we do a kind of a, a, a after hours um, social gathering out in the parking lot with the, in the trailer camp. Uh, we usually get together every year. So that's on Tuesday night at the farm show. So if you okay. are out there, we do have a booth and, uh, you know, we're around all week. So that's kind of our big, awesome. our big show of the year. Okay, great. Hey, Ben, how can somebody get a hold of you if they heard something or they want to get in contact with Eric? Yep, you can you can follow along with harvest updates here as we get into the fall um, on Twitter at the Ben Jacob or on Facebook at Ben Jacob Agronomy. Mr. Schrader. Yep, you can find me on Instagram at B underscore K underscore Schrader. So with that, we'll call it an episode. We appreciate Eric joining us again, a strategic account manager from uh, Central Valley of California. Learn a little bit more about uh, Fresno State, make a prediction on a big football game that's uh, starting the season off, and uh, just to learn a lot more about Pioneer. So with that, we appreciate you listening. Hope to catch you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.